Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you. And welcome to December, y'all. Just very good that we have now entered the Christmas season. Although I know some of you, it started like six months ago, but we can't even get into that. So here we are later on for the inbox. We have a listener who is a Christian and admits to struggling with same-sex attraction. So he is wondering, is it even possible to remain single and celibate for your entire life? How does he follow this road uh, with a biblical construct, really, and honoring God in the process? So fortunately, our friend Jeff Johnston is going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, if you've ever watched the YouTube channel ApplyGodsWord.com, you've seen Mark Ballin offer relationship advice. Well, he is here this week to share insights from his book, Christ-Centered Dating, and is going to give some pointers on how to date in a way that leads toward marriage. So kind of cutting the clutter from his own experience. He's got some great stories related to that. All right, here we are for our roundtable. Because I mentioned we are in December, what better thing to talk about and to lighten up the mood than to talk about fun Christmas parties. Now, all of you who are just waiting for everyone else to plan a Christmas party (laughs) that you will attend, maybe it's on you this year to plan a Christmas party. So fortunately, we have got Georgia, Megan, and Ryan here to have a conversation with me. Hey, y'all. Hey. Good to have you. Hello, hello. All right, well, let's go ahead and start breaking this down because I would say, I mean, first of all, let's just talk about Christmas parties. I know we always talk at the holidays about everyone's so stressed out and there are too many things going on and no one has done Christmas shopping and no one has even gotten their lives together. Those who are listening who are in college, you're just doing finals and you can barely even, you know, get your mind sorted and whatnot. So parties... Do you put them on the calendar? Do they just happen as they happen? Do you, are you just like a, you know, hanger honor to people who are already doing stuff? What does it generally look like for you in December? I put it on the calendar for many reasons. Okay. One, because I like to plan ahead. Two, because this year specifically, I am hosting one. So mm-hmm. I need to be ready and able and to see what I need to do beforehand. Okay. I did go to a baby shower that you hosted, and it was very fun. So I can only imagine that Christmas will be like off the chain. I I sure hope so. Okay. Well, high hopes. Okay. Megan. This is is about my first year that I've been able to really host, except for in high school when you have like friends over, which I would do that then. But I think every year there's always a few that come up, and I always make it a point to go. And this is one of the first years that I'm excited to actually plan the party of my dreams. Okay, well, excited. we'll circle back to find out what that actually is. But Ryan, tell us about your Christmas party vibe. Uh, yeah, I like to plan, like to put it on the calendar, trying to get, like a lot of my parties involve a ton of food. Mm-hmm. And so trying to get people to bring a lot of good quality food, not just like <laughs> crackers and cheese bought from the store on the way over. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like food is important. I'm, I'm, I, I grew up in the South. So uh, yeah, we like to plan and then a lot of parties, probably a couple too many. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Though I will, I mean, crackers and cheese, that's like next level compared to where a lot of people are. Like, hey, here's a bag of Fritos. Okay. Can okay. I say something real fast? Okay. One sure. time I hosted a party and I made these like this like squash puree and I put it on bruschetta and like it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody touched it. They only ate the chocolate chip cookies mm. and the 
pigs in a blanket. blanket. And I was devastated because we <laughs> we we just worked so hard on these this bruschetta, this like fancy had a drizzle on it. Nobody ate it, and I was like, fine, I'm never doing anything fancy again. I would have eaten it. Thank you. Anyway, yeah. no, that's very good. Except no one is going to turn down pigs in a blanket and chocolate chip cookies. And I so hear clearly you. And that's, and you, you that's why competing you said, you said squash puree. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like baby food, but it's actually delish. Okay, well, we'll we'll give you a pass on that, I guess. Okay, so what? Now, I would say for me, I often get into the space of like, okay, I want to attend these parties, I want to make this happen, whatever. But then I have to start condensing because it's like I've got church things going on. I've got work things going on. I've got friend things going on. I have a small group things mm. going on. I have fortunate my family. I'm just like hard pass on y'all. I mean, most of them don't even like live near me. So that's good. But I'm just like, okay, I can't fit everyone in. So I'll see you guys in February. <laughs> anyway, that's just my own personal thing. I'm just being honest. So what does it look like for you to say, oh, okay, first of all, Megan, we will have to have you talk about the Christmas party of your dreams, because this is playing into my question of what does the Christmas party of your dreams look like? What components does it have to have for you to either host it or attend it, like to make it shoot to the top of your list? Well, I'll start us off. Okay, because you're going to set the standard. Yes, I suppose so. Please do. So for me with the party, there's a few elements that need to be considered. One of which I agree with Ryan is the food. Too often, it's just the classic Cheetos, chips and salsa, all those things that are good. Mm -hmm. But when you're intentionally planning a party, I personally love to make somewhat themey intentional snacks. So for example, Christmas, make some gingerbread cookies, make some something a little fancy or like orange cranberry bread, something, something Mm -hmm. that just makes it feel a little different than the other parties that you go to. Secondly, actually curating some form of activity, some form of interactive element. Some people are fine with going to parties and just talking all night. Personally, I am not. I get (laughs) kind of bored. (laughs) I'm not much of a talker. So I like it when parties have the classic white elephant or secret Santa or some form of like the game where you have the oven mitts on and you have to unwrap the tinfoil. Something fun to get the, mm-hmm. the morale boosted, something like that. And then I also think it's a nice touch when you add a little bit of effort to some form of decorum, some form of themed tablecloths or like fun trays, fun mugs, fun cups. Something, once again, to just make the party stand out a bit. Okay, that's good. How, would you guys agree with that or what would you add? I would say the more people there are, the better. That's how I would say if a party is lit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my favorite thing when it's sardine-like and you can't, you're like, oh, can I, excuse me? Uh, that's my favorite thing. Yeah. So I think having a lot of people and also just like providing a space for people to invite people. Like I don't want it to just be a party where it's just the people I know. I want it to be like a new person came in town and they knew this person, so they invited them. Just because I think, especially around the holidays, if you're new to a city and you don't have anywhere to go, it just kind of feels even harder. So I just like providing spaces for people to invite new people and allow them to feel welcome um, into this new city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, completely agree with Georgia. We Having too many people in a house, like about 16 people too many, is like, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, and like I think like what she also just says, like we, you know, I've been involved in young adult ministry for, for many, many years. And so there's always people like that move here to go to college or just do something out here on their own. They don't have anywhere to go. So we always, 
we have a family Christmas, family Thanksgiving. We always have a few what we call orphans. Uh, we did not start that name, but it has stuck. Uh, we always have a, like several orphans there. Um, and then, yeah, so too many people. And then the food, you have to like, mm-hmm. the food is so important. And not just making party foods that are shareable, making inconvenient foods. Like, listen, make some gumbo. Make, you know, uh, go out there, make some wassail. You got to do things that take too many hours to make. Like, I don't know. I Gifts are important and I, and I love gifts and I love receiving gifts. And I love giving gifts. But man, like that's when people gather around and like, you know, 20 years from now, mm-hmm. they're just like, oh my gosh, when you go like to this house, you know, there's going to be two things. There's going to be too many people and there's going to be the best food you've ever had. And mm-hmm. that is the highest form of praise I could ever have for a party. Yeah. Okay. Make... Make some wassail. Could you yeah. define okay, wassail? Okay, Charles Dickens. <laughs> We've got... <laughs> yeah, I was like, I've never heard of this dish. So wassail, I believe... No, it's it, a drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wassail is, oh. is a dish. Or, sorry, wassail is a drink. I believe it comes from Central Europe. It is, uh, I believe, a slow-cooked cider that is spiced. Uh, and so, I mean, that's kind of it. You just, you put in a lot of uh, fragrant You're, things like cloves and... You're supposed to hand it out to Christmas carolers. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, right, I, I of believe, course. Yeah, I believe it comes yeah. from Very German old world. Of course. Very old <laughs> But like, yeah, you got to get, you gotta get the knows. wassail, you got to get the mold wine, you got to get all the mm-hmm. stuff out there. Yeah. Speaking mm-hmm. of which, I had, I hosted a very fun Christmas party one time where I made the people in my party, and by made, it was a loose invite, but... I really kind of put the pressure on for folks to join me in caroling around my neighborhood. And then I handed out like Christmas cards to all my neighbors with like little cookies and stuff that I'd made. So that was just fun. And it got everyone into it. Isn't that wholesome? Okay. Thanks. (laughs) So, I mean, just an idea y'all and maybe you can make some wassail and hand it out to folks as you're around and about. Okay, so that, I mean, that is a good idea. I think I, or those are good ideas, I should say. I I like the idea, but you guys need to comment on, because clearly we have two extroverts commenting here. (laughs) How do you do these parties and include introverts who already are never going to attend a party at your place because you just said you wanted 16 more people than actually fit. Like, that's just anathema to some people. And or, so how do you create space for people of different personality types? For Georgia, to your point, the new people who don't even know anyone and are afraid yeah. to, you know, have a conversation without having it be like, hi, here's my Christmas book club, you know, where extroverts like lose their minds because yeah. it's all like quiet and whatever. At least at my house, we... And again, I think it depends on kind of the structure of your house, um, if I'm being honest. And I think it also depends on kind of your thoughts of how a party should go. But at least like where I live right now, we kind of have a loft area. And so my plan was like, okay, the upstairs area will have like some Christmas movie going on so that the introverts that come to the party can retreat to the upstairs and grab their food. And then people who want to mix and mingle can stay downstairs or go outside. And um, we also have like a fire pit. So that's kind of the plan for this Christmas party Mm -hmm. this year is to have the fire pit going so people can stand by the fire, people can go upstairs to retreat. um, And those who like really love to mingle can hang out downstairs and around the food and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that offers something for everybody. Okay, that's good. Any other ideas? I can't say that I make space like Georgia does, which I think that is a very good idea for introverts. Uh, again, with the with the young adult ministry and with just like our friend group that is naturally formed, we have a lot of people that have very different personalities, but we all very highly value community. Mm-hmm. So 
it's just kind of understood that when you come there, like if you want to get into a group of quieter people and maybe not yell at each other, mm-hmm. uh, then you can go over like you can go and do your own thing. And but like I don't know. So community is very important, but being with the entire community the whole time is not something that we overly stress. People kind of naturally. Uh, separate themselves and then come back in when they feel comfortable because, you know, sometimes people just need to go outside, get a breath of fresh air Mm -hmm. while everyone's just being super loud. The only rule is uh, stay out of the kitchen. I'm going to yell at you. Mm -hmm. Stay out of it. I don't want you to get in my way when I'm cooking. Okay. Okay. That's good. So what about another awkward pairing or awkward situation is when people want to invite people from different spheres of their lives, especially when, like, we've all been to the super Christian party, And that has its own forms of awkwardness, I would say. But like, what if you want to invite like coworkers or your neighbors or whatever, and they're with, you know, Peter and Paul and Andrew, James and John, just talking about their latest Bible study and stuff. And you're like, okay, how do I knit these two groups together? Because that can get weird. I mean, I remember inviting, a friend of mine was inviting some coworkers to a game night that we had. They didn't even know what that was. Um, They in turn invited her to go to a strip club, which she turned down to her credit. But it can get awkward. Like when it's like, wow, these are people from different worlds. And how do we even allow them to have a conversation in this space? What are your ideas around that? I think considering the people and their different perspectives or their different energies, vibes, per se, any any word that you want to use to describe that, considering that before you kind of plan whatever mm-hmm. this get-together is, yeah. is really important because I think there are some situations in which that just wouldn't, like, work well. Like, there have been times when I've planned a certain get-together that's smaller that I've been, like, it makes more sense for us to invite people who know each other for this context. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to get different circles together, doing something maybe a bit more like George's party of like intentionally creating a space with a lot of different people and leaving it so open and big that people don't feel like eyes are on them Mm -hmm. and they can just kind of find their people or even maybe intentionally creating some event, some way in which they can intentionally meet each other that feels natural. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I think it it depends on really curating what that space is going to look like for the people that will be there. Yeah. Yeah, I will say I do think that the moment when worlds collide, I think it feels less intimidating than it really is. Um, At least in my circle of friends, I know that a lot of them are inviters. And so I don't usually have the fear of inviting people from different spaces, just because I can trust that my friends are going to be inclusive. Sorry, I can trust that my friends are going to be inclusive, that they're going to care for new people. um, And that I don't need to be worried about, okay, are they only going to talk about this subject or this subject? Um, so I feel like it's usually not too bad um, when worlds collide. I, on- I honestly feel like it's pretty nice to have different people from different spaces come into my home and feel like they can be included, even though they may not go to the same church or work at Focus or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think um, I wanted to ask kind of in light of that, then what you're mentioning, Georgia, is something that I think is is cool, but is often not thought of by people. And that is almost having party wingmen, 
like who are going to help you. Now, clearly, Ryan's not going to have anyone in the kitchen, but maybe you'll have people elsewhere doing things of like being those people that are looking out for the person standing by themselves or, you know, who are your great conversationalists who can talk to anyone and can kind of help keep the party vibe going? Who are the super fun people that are going to start a game or say something crazy or be whatever? I think those kind of people are great to have because they're going to make a party fun. They're going to be the people who are like on the lookout for doing helpful things like that. So yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what kind of in our last few minutes here, what are just some other tips like that, that we often don't think of that might be like, hey, you want to put on a killer party, make sure you think of this. I mean, this is kind of a uh, slightly unfair answer uh, that kind of goes back into it, uh, goes back into like a more philosophical place, but really developing a culture of intentionality when it comes to community. That sounds like a much bigger thing. And so maybe as you're planning your Christmas party, this is not the time to start doing that. But if that's something you're noticing in your parties and that's something you're wanting, trying to figure that out a week before the party starts, that can be pretty hard. Now, it can start now, but really you just have to make community something that you highly value and you value it so much that when someone new comes in, you want them part of the community. So you want to make them feel seen. You want to make them feel heard. Um, again, the young, the young adult group that, uh, that I used to be a part of here, that was something that was just so intense was just when someone comes in, like, you know, you give them a hug or you ask them like, you know, are you, are you okay with hugs and you know, handshake, but you go up there, you see them, you try to interact with them with, in some way, you try to stay by them throughout the night so that they feel like they have someone there. If you, if you really want that, if you, if that's something you really want to see, then you have to start now and start building that culture that develops around your friend group. And then next year, it's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. One thing I would say is don't just think of your parties in a lens, through a lens of how can I have fun, but also how can I provide a space that allows people to feel welcomed, to feel safe, to feel like they are with people who care about them. And as someone who is an introvert, I often will I think notice other introverts in circles a bit more easily because I totally understand where they're at. So I think I make a little more intentionality in inviting the people who I know are great but are quieter, who might not be as outgoing, who might not get as many party invites because I want them to know that they're like seen. So look at it as an opportunity to welcome people in who might not be as outgoing as I am in planning a party, you know? Yeah, I kind of just to tie it up, I do think having a mentality of hosting before you host a big Christmas bash, I think that's important because if somebody has never been to your house before and the first thing you invite them to is a Christmas party or a Friendsgiving party or something that's very themed, I feel like that is intimidating. So having a mentality of hosting small things leading up to that, I think makes it easier for someone who's been to your house before. They kind of know how small bonfires go at your house or they know how a book club at your house goes. And then they'll feel a little more comfortable showing up to something bigger, like a Christmas party or a themed party of sorts. I think that's important to open up your home, not just for the big things, but just um, on a regular basis day to day. Yeah, that's good. That makes me think of... Um 
kind of a couple different ways that I've seen things work in the past and ways I've hosted things. One is to do something that's like a drop-in so that no one feels, especially if they don't know you that well or they're not going to know other people, that they feel like they're committing four hours of their night to this. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, drop in. I'm making a bunch of soups. Um, You know, come on in, stay for a while, grab some cookies and leave or whatever kind of makes it nice and attainable for folks. And then also, if you're doing a bigger party, I would say my my advice is to have a few separate areas where people can do different things. I remember one year I hosted a birthday party where I actually hired a friend who did karaoke for us. Um, she had a karaoke business and it was super fun. But if you're connecting with someone and you want to talk, uh, don't do a karaoke party if you're in an apartment and everyone is going to be forced to participate in karaoke. So only do it when you have like, in my case, it wasn't a fun outdoor space where people could go and have quieter conversations or be like, I'm tapping out of the karaoke for a while. So that kind of thing and making that a little bit of a difference. Um, and then I was going to say too, for Christmas in particular, my other idea is don't be afraid to and, you know, maybe this is just me because I'm always like, how am I going to put some Jesus into this? And so I think I, I do that pretty deliberately and pretty boldly where I would do a Christmas party, even with friends and past, you know, coworkers or whatever. And, um, do do a part of the evening where I read through the Christmas story or where we do sing carols or we do. I remember going to Disney World a few years back when they do a thing during the Christmas season that is some version of like Christmas carol, whatever people. And it's like a big stage with this big choir. And then some celebrity gets up and reads a Christmas story and people like the wait to get into this was like over four hours long. And there were special seats you could pay to be upgraded. And I'm like, you can go to any Christian church during Christmas and go to this thing. And people are literally standing in line and paying extra to go to this and whatever. And it just made me realize like, People are so hungry to be connected and to be part of something real and something truth grounded during the holiday season and beyond that it's like, yeah, don't negate the power of that. I think that's a great opportunity for people to be part of something. So, well, you guys, thank you so much for these great ideas. I love it. Thanks so. for having us. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll see you at all your parties. Yeah. Friends, today I get to introduce you to a new friend here. His name is Mark Ballinger. Some of you may already know him uh, because of his YouTube presence. If you've been to his site, Apply God's Word, or on YouTube, applygodsword.com slash 
Mark Ballinger, um, you will see that he dispenses a lot of relationship advice. He's a relationship coach. Um, In addition to that, he speaks and he has written books, including the one that we're going to talk about today, which is titled, heads up, Christ-Centered Dating, Pursuing a Relationship that Glorifies God. And so I know this is in the wheelhouse of Boundless. It's also near and dear to the heart of many of you who are trying to date in a God-honoring way and really um, make good choices in that and hopefully find the person that God has for you, um, if that is the case. And so, and be encouraged in your single season in the meantime. And so, Mark, welcome to The Boundless Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lisa. Well, this is really fun, our privilege. So um, so this is pretty exciting. I want to jump right in and kind of get a little background. So a lot of folks do know you through your YouTube channel, and again, um, mm-hmm. and what you do on your site at Apply God's Word. So how did you really get started in this environment and decide? I mean, this reminds me of like, you know, not that we haven't talked to other influencers here at Boundless and stuff, but it's kind of like, you know, everyone's dad when they're like, I'm not sure that's a job. Like, you know, what are you actually doing? So talk to us a little bit about how this got started and what really has prompted you to realize that, wow, the Christian singles out there and young adults and others are really wanting to listen to um, great advice in this area. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I basically consider myself a writer kind of masquerading as a YouTuber. (laughs) And uh, so I I really started doing this type of work by um, just having a passion for writing. And so I started a blog um, as a way of reaching people. And I was really starting out writing on all kinds of topics, which I still do. But over the first year or two, I started noticing a lot of people gravitating towards the content that I was making about relationships and for Christian singles who want to be married. And I really like being helpful. So I leaned more into that specific niche. And then, you know, just experimenting and trying to reach more people, I started a YouTube channel. And, you know, God just really took off with it and and allowed it to reach a lot of people and help a lot of people. And the feedback from the people uh, who who watched the content kind of confirmed that maybe I was on the right track and in, in trying to help people in that particular way. So, um, so yeah, just kind of a, a combination of my passion combined with the need from the audience, and we kind of meet in the middle and find this happy little place at applygodsword.com. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, and I do want to say yeah. so that people know, you know, they can uh, allay any fears. Uh, you are legit. You actually have a master's in pastoral counseling. So lest there are any yahoos out there that just want to start a YouTube channel and yeah. say that they're going to start counseling people, like, you right. know, get right. some credentials, people, and and trust God, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, don't not everyone can be a counselor and, and, and do that. But so I appreciate you kind of clarifying that. That's good. Well, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your story, because I know um, it was funny in, in reading it, you know, you saying that your wife, Bethany, is a little older than you are. I would love to hear mm-hmm. how you guys met. Um, and it is kind of funny, because it, I've just heard a pastor talking about how his wife is about uh, five years older than he is. And he's, he prefaced yeah. it by saying, I know you find that hard to believe, because I look like 15 years older than she is, just with poor lifestyle know, decisions that's... or whatever. <laughs> I thought that was pretty awesome. So, but give us a little yeah. bit of your story of how you guys met and really, you know, how your journey as a couple started. Yeah. So like you said, she's about five years older than me. So 
it was kind of nice. We met on a missions trip in uh, Liberia, West Africa. We were both serving with this organization called Mercy Ships. Hmm. And so it was kind of nice that we had that age difference because at first it was kind of like obvious, like, all right, I don't really have a chance with her romantically. I'm 19 at the moment, you know, she's 24. So it, it took a lot of pressure off sometimes when you have that like a uh, looming elephant in the room of the romantic interest. So we were able to just build a great friendship, you know, with a, a community of other Christians. And then, you know, my feelings were growing and I think hers were too. And we were just great friends. And so when I turned 20 and I lost that annoying, like a uh, teen word at the end, 19, you know, I, I turned 20. I'm like, okay, maybe I have a small chance here. So I kind of, took my shot and God, by the grace of God, she, uh, she went with it and here we are. That's great. Cause I'm sure between that, you know, the step between 19 and 20, you just matured exponentially. So made all the difference. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> it was like a light switch. As <laughs> those, soon as it happened, I was just a hundred percent different man. So <laughs> yeah, those four to six months, they did a lot. So that's good. No, you that's, know. that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about, cause again, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty awesome story. And I hope that it is hopeful for people listening that I often say here at Boundless, you know, look around you, like do an awesome missions trip, be about certain Serving, be about living your yeah. life and about glorifying God as a single person. And then, you know, and many have said it before me, and then look around and see who's doing the same thing nearby. So yeah. um, that's such a yeah. great, great example of that playing out and, you know, not being formulaic about it, but just trusting God through the process and realizing that, man, you know, he can orchestrate something. I think that's, that's super cool. Um, I do want to yeah. say, though, because I want you to tell this portion of, of what you kind of mm -hmm. outlined in the book as well, you know, you realized that even post-marriage, you had some stuff that you had to work through. Specifically, I mm -hmm. like the way that you called out some trust issues related to some yeah. old wounds. And so talk yeah. to us a little bit about how you became aware of that, because I think sometimes we're like, no, I'm cool. You know, that was in the past, whatever. But right. then you realize it plays right. into decisions you're making now. So what had to happen yeah. for you in that context? You know, it's a great question. I, I think the probably the shortest way to answer it is, is, is to say I was noticing symptoms, you know, symptoms were popping up that weren't necessarily causes, but there were symptoms like when you're sick. And I just felt like, okay, I'm, I'm lacking trust in her for reasons that don't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me not to trust her. And so that was a symptom of something going on deeper in my heart that God just had to work out and say, hey, you know, she's not the problem. You know, like no matter what she says or what she does, you're never going to like fix that by finding this perfect woman. And so God just kind of showed me through my actions and, and the way I was feeling that there's a problem. And, and, you know, by his grace, he just walked me more and more through the details of that and, and said, Hey, here's a trust issue from your past. And I, I talk, I unpack it more in the book. It's kind of a story. So, you know, in the book, I explain, uh, just how God used my past to mature me for the future and, and be able to trust in marriage. Yeah. Well, wasn't it in, even in looking at your own parents' relationship? Because I know your dad, um, you, you outline in the book how your dad had an affair. And I mean, that must have rocked your right. world. And, you know, that kind of person having to have some shaky trust in that situation. Was that like, did the Lord just reveal that to you as a symptom or a cause? Or how did you, how were you able to put your finger on that? 
That's a great question. I would say, honestly, that part of my healing journey really started before I got into a relationship with Bethany. Um, I was really young, and my uncle gave me that book that went kind of bonkers, like wild at heart. You know, people just started reading that book, and it resonated with that father wound issue. Mm -hmm. And I was, I think, about 17, which, you know, 20 years ago already, I think, if I'm doing my math right, Mm -hmm. uh, that message resonated with me. Like, I do have a father wound. You know, I need to find healing there. And so there was a journey before I got into a relationship where I was addressing some of those validation issues as a man. And, um, and then it just continued on. And it's a journey, you know, that process of sanctification is not where you're just like, boom, now I'm 100% ready for marriage. It was like, okay, I'm at a level where I'm, where I'm ready, but I know there's still work to be done. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And and I really think, you know, a lot of us look at healing as like, well, I just need to get this over with so I can move on with my life. But you realize yeah. it really is a lifelong process and we're going to be wounded throughout our lives. It's not only in our childhoods. Yeah. And so hopefully, um, you know, and I think it's encouraging for you to attest to the fact that, you know, getting some great training, strengthening that muscle early on, to learn to trust God, even through disappointments, yeah. is is setting yourself up um, for trusting Him yeah. in the future as well. Yeah, amen. That's kind of like how I conclude the book. You know, the last chapter is called uh, Christ Over Compatibility, and that's kind of the point. Like, if you want to have a healthy marriage long-term, it's not going to be because you found this person that you're so compatible with and that everything fits perfectly. Like, compatibility is an element. I'm not saying it's not important. But ultimately, it comes down, are you both willing to follow Christ, forgive, deal with issues, and continue to grow as a couple? Because then you don't need to find this like perfect person that doesn't really exist. It's about finding that person who can work through the challenges and issues with you uh, throughout the journey together. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I do want you to, I'm going to summarize them quickly, but I would love for you to just comment on what you outline in the book. And again, we're talking about Christ-centered dating, pursuing a relationship that glorifies God. I'm talking to Mark Ballinger. Um, You really talk a lot about lies. And again, these playing into those wounds. And you say you recommend five steps to take towards healing, um, including label the lie concisely, confess your sins stemming from the lie, verbally reject the lie and state the truth, memorize a key scripture, basically, and then keep moving mm-hmm. forward with the Lord. Give an example of like from in your life where you kind of had to walk through those steps and apply them to a situation. Yeah, well, um, I think even just dealing with, you know, my own sin nature, recognizing okay, let's say I'm ashamed of something I've done in my past. And so I have to look at that, confess that sin, and then reorganize my thought process in a biblical perspective. I'm not an eternal failure. I'm God's son. I'm going to relabel myself in accordance to what God says in his word, because, you know, the, the wounds, the initial pain isn't really what damages your life the most. You know, that like, for example, my dad, when I'm, when I'm young, you know, my dad having an affair, that's, that's hard to to figure out, but it's the lies that I believed afterwards that really mess you up. And so you have to address those lies and combat them with truth of God's word. And 
so you you come under his word and I, and I say you should verbalize it because it makes it more real you know when you can just say it out loud and you're saying no I reject the lie that I'm a failure I reject the lie that I'm unworthy to be loved and then you restate scripture you know like God loves me I'm his son you know God's maybe a new creation and um you know I find that to be extremely healing and it, it transforms the way you can move forward. Yeah. It's funny because I could hear someone saying, well, but Mark, listen up. I mean, I've done these things, or I have not trusted God, or I have deliberately defied him or whatever. And I think of a, a previous guest I interviewed here on Boundless, and I'll never forget it. In fact, the title of the book was The Truest Thing About You. And our guest mm. kind of outlined the fact that, you know, yeah, we're sinners. There are things that we do. There yeah. are bad things that we will never be able to take back. And they are true things about us, but they're not the truest thing about us. And by being right. new in Christ and being given a new heart and being given, uh, being restored from ashes, you know, God has given us a new defining purpose. And I think that's so helpful in re-clarifying, you know, yeah, how we move forward with confidence, because it's not, it's what God did for us, not for what we're trying to manage as far as sin or our story or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And and it, and I feel like God allows us to go through those things to deepen our appreciation and uh, walk in the gospel. You know, yeah. like if I didn't have to go through it in the flesh and have a particular issue, you know, this one little thing that's very specific to me, and then apply the the gospel to that, like I wouldn't be able to have this richer uh, experience with God that He wants us to experience through the gospel. Right. Yeah, so true. All right, well, let's get into a little of the nitty-gritty on singleness and dating, because I think you give a lot of great, helpful direction here. So first of all, um, at Apply God's Word, tell me, how many times does someone ask you a variation of the question, Mark, help me find the one? Can I find the one? <laughs> Is there the one? Yeah. Have I already found the yeah. one and they passed me by? I mean, I feel like yeah. so many people are tied up in knots over this question. How would you normally respond to that? Yeah, that's a great question. I normally respond now by like referring to one of the articles I've written that phrases their question the exact way they've asked it, mm -hmm. because I've answered that question in probably a hundred different ways, because people ask it in a hundred different ways. But the big principles are basically that I, the way I use the phrase, the one is not to mean your soulmate or, you know, this perfect match that you're never going to have problems with but rather the person God has planned for you to marry. So when I read scripture, it's very clear to me that God's a sovereign God. He has a plan. And that doesn't negate our free will. That doesn't mean, you know, our choices don't matter, that we can't make mistakes. But that big concept, that big truth of God's sovereignty isn't supposed to make you this frozen person who doesn't do anything. Rather, it's supposed to give you confidence that God has a plan. And when I walk in faith, he's going to accomplish his will. And so in that big truth, we then unpack the little steps someone can take. You know, you, here's the things you can do practically, like you were talking about earlier, you know, go on a mission trip, uh, you know, spend time in your Christian community, maybe try online dating if that's something you feel led to do. But you have that big theological truth of God's sovereignty, trusting him, walking in faith, and, you know, following his leading in that. 
Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because so many daters that I know, and I'm I'm still single, you know, so I certainly it's not like, you know, I have a fairy tale ending or anything, but so many daters come to me and they're like, Lisa, you know, well, here's what here's what I need. And they like list out basically what becomes a hypothetical person, yeah. you know, and they're yeah. looking for the hypothetical. And I love what you say in the book. In fact, I'm going to quote it here. You say, after decades of ups and downs in your own marriage, you gain firsthand knowledge that a successful marriage is less about finding a perfect person and more about learning to love a flawed person. And I just feel yeah. like that's so freeing to realize that you're going to put on the blinders and pick someone who hopefully loves God and is relatively healthy and is committed mm-hmm. to you. And then you work it out. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I feel like that just kind of cuts a lot of the clutter. I mean, have you found that true in your own marriage? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and you know, just to kind of take it back to Scripture, you know, like when you look at our, rela- you know, the marriage, it's supposed to reflect Christ in the Church, right? And so, you know, when you look at our relationship with Christ, where does it start? You know, it starts with forgiveness. It starts with grace. And so it just doesn't make sense for us to think our marriages aren't going to be, like, rooted on the same principles if our marriages are supposed to be reflecting Christ in the Church. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's about finding someone who wants to glorify God with you and, you know, is walking in that grace. Um, you know, like you—I will go back to what you said about the list. You know, that's a common phrase we I use a lot, like— your list. You know, what what do you want? Who do you who are you looking for? And a lot of times our lists become a list of ways we've been hurt in the past. And these are now uh oh, I want someone who who has this character because we're living out of a past wound of this other person hurting us in that way. And it becomes a list of barriers honestly, but of finding someone that you, that actually exists. And so, you know, in the book I talk about basically four biblical requirements that all Christians have to have to find a spouse. And then, you know, of course, there's going to be some subjective uh, qualities that you want. That's normal and healthy. We all need that in relationships. But really, there's like four things every Christian should have on their list. Number one, they have to be a Christian. Number two, they have to be bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, number three, they should be ready to fulfill the biblical role of a husband or wife. And then number four, there needs to be a mutual romantic interest. You know, those are the biblical qualities that you, that have to be on your list. And then the rest of it is kind of up to you. <laughs> yeah, you can work it out from there. So I think it's yeah. also good, yeah. and you, you illustrate this too. In fact, I'm going to read again, uh, quote a portion from the book. You say, when you apply the Bible to your life and obey it, you'll find a lot of clarity about God's personal will and sovereign will for your life as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really assuring because and reassuring because um, I think too often we start like, oh, I'm going to start dating, so I need to start cherry-picking verses that are going to apply to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if you're walking with the Lord and listening to the Holy Spirit about all areas of your life, He's going to talk to you about dating too. You know, we act like it's some kind of compartmentalized thing where now you're on your own. So sorry, you know, I'm checking out. But yeah, so much wisdom that we're applying and and humbling ourselves before God and choosing to be obedient to his precepts um, is just going to set us up for success, I think, when it comes to relationships as well. So I really appreciate what you said there. Um, Okay, so now that everyone who's listening is totally set straight and they're going to be a healthy dater, 
Why do we have all these people in the church that are telling us nonsense, Mark, about what our future spouse will look like or how they're going to be found? I mean, this terrible advice that Christians are so want to give, I guess. Um, I know you've, yeah. you've heard a lot of it. I've heard a lot of it as well. Um, any any uh, suggestions for responding to stuff like that or, or as it comes about within the church and beyond? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a big topic, and I think each instance would be different, but I would say in the Church, a lot of the advice given is coming out of other people's wounds. You know, they're they're worried that you're going to get hurt like they got hurt, hmm. and they're just trying to help, but, you know, that's misguided advice. So a lot of times, like you said, that you just said, like, for some reason in the Church, People give really good advice when you like need a job, you know, like, or you need healing, you need something else in your life. You know, you, they say, well, pray and uh, uh, apply for jobs. You know, I have a friend, Hey, talk to this person or, Oh, you need healing. Let's pray about that. And let's get you some good medical help. And so they have like this good theological perspective and they have some good practical advice and all that works together. But then when you get to relationships, somehow there's like this disconnect and and it becomes like ultra spiritual. Like you just need to wait and pray. If you do anything, you're mm-hmm. you're not trusting God. And it's like that's not consistent. That's not consistent with what we say in every other situation in life. So what I try to offer people in the book is a theological way to view relationships and dating, and then practical advice on what to do. Because really, when you look at like the epistles and the letters uh, in the in the New Testament. It starts with theology in the beginning of the books, and then it works towards practical living towards the end of the books. And so that's kind of how I tried to order the book I wrote, just big theology, God's glory, do it all for the right reason, and here's some really practical things you can do to actually increase the chances of meeting the right person. Yeah. It it always stymies me when young adults are very, like, they're going to trick God or something. Like, if I act like I don't want to be <laughs> married, then God will finally be like, yeah. okay, well, now you can be married. Or, you know, they're going to trick the yeah. the guy or girl they want to date into, you know, if I act casual enough about it. And I'm like, no, I tried that. And basically, they just thought that I didn't want to be married. So that didn't work yeah, for me. that's funny. It's weird how we all, like, we have that mental gymnastics trick. Like, if I don't want it, then God will give it to me. Yeah. But, yeah, that's uh, that just is really self-defeating. It's about the motives. You can want something like that with for the right reasons and take practical steps as you follow God and, and do it for His glory, rather than getting all mixed up in your head and trying weird things that just don't work. <laughs> for sure. Okay, well, as we finish out here, this is a question I often like to ask, uh, especially the married folks uh, that come on the show, because uh, it's always great to get that mentorish kind of advice. What would you say, Mark, since getting married, um, recognizing all that marriage is and whatever, what's been an unexpected disappointment in marriage, like a way that you maybe had unmet expectations, and what has been mm-hmm. your biggest surprise in a good way with marriage? Yeah, that's a great question. I, For me personally, I guess, it would come the biggest disappointment for me was just realizing how selfish i was you know just mm-hmm. like like you don't realize i didn't realize how selfish i was and, and and how many like personal issues i have until you have this other person in your life that's always there and you can't hide from and it exposes the truth you know and so that was surprising because when when you can kind of like get away from people when you're not married. You can kind of like 
go home and, and, and relax and put on your different face. And, and then sometimes just being around someone all the time exposes things that just don't get exposed otherwise. So maybe that's not true for everybody, but that was true for me. And then the big surprise was just how much God uses this relationship to sanctify me and grow me. Like it was, it's just crazy how, how much God's used it to point out issues, but not leave me there and then grow me. And, and through the love of my wife and of course, just ultimately through the love of Christ, just growing me as a man of God, uh, just over the years through marriage has just been, yeah, crazy to think about. So yeah. it's, it's a, uh, it's a journey. Yeah. That's so great. So thanks for your honesty in that. Um, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, we we are out of time. So I want to let people know, folks, uh, for those of you that know, we do this a lot when we have guests uh, who are authors on the show, that we want to make a copy of Christ-Centered Dating available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So if you just go to boundless.org, you can search for 827. Uh, that's this week's episode, and you'll see the book cover there. You just click on it. Give a gift to Boundless, and we will send a copy of Mark's book to you. So you might be that person that's like, yeah, I've got wounds. Yeah, I've heard really dumb stuff from the church. Yeah, I kind of believe in the one. So we want to help you out and give you some great wisdom and advice there. So again, Boundless.org, just search for 827. You'll see the book cover. You give a gift to us. We will send Mark's book as our thank you to you so you can make it happen. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Lisa. Well, we've reached part of our show where we open up our inbox, bring in a fabulous expert to answer the question and uh, answer literally a listener question. And so today we have got the fantastic Jeff Johnston. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Lisa. He is one of our analysts here specifically uh, emphasizing and or his expertise being in sexuality and gender. So we knew that you were going to be the one for this. And so our listener is wondering, Jeff, I am a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. How can I have hope in pursuing a life of singleness when no one around me is single for life? Is it even possible to remain single and celibate for life? The world tells me I need to be in a relationship, and the church also says the same thing with their constant elevation of marriage. Well, Lisa, I thought um, that was an interesting way to phrase things, pursuing a life of singleness. Um, And I would suggest not doing that. Hmm. I would suggest, first of all, um, pursuing a life of chastity, 
which would include being married or not being married. It means you're pursuing wholeness and holiness and sexual wholeness. And then I would encourage you to pursue a life of relationships. Um, it's not true that everybody's going to get married. Right now, millennials, I, I think it's 25% have never been married. Um, I don't know what it is for Gen Z, but um, we're raising a generation that isn't getting married as much. And so there are going to be a lot of singles around you. And even if you are single, um, remember this, many men are really lonely. And you can be the man that takes the initiative and pursues relationship with other men. I think that's going to be really important for you. That's good. And so you're saying, I mean, basically, I like what you're saying. And actually, the Gen Z stat, they're saying that about um, almost 30% of Gen Z won't be married by 40. So there is a lot more singleness out there. But I like what you're saying of this isn't some kind of sentence that they have to live out. Obviously, you know, relationship is a good thing. Okay, but this person is most likely, I'm going to assume, Jeff, that they want to ask you, okay, but how do I do that in a healthy way? How do I go after relationships with other men? in a way that is God-honoring. Yeah, well, you are going to have issues come up in relationships, and you're going to have to be open with God and with other people about the issues that come up. Um, that's what happens when you're in relationships with people. It triggers things. Um, one of the things I learned from my wife, um, everybody loves my wife. And I was. it was only about 10 years ago that I finally figured this out. Everybody loves my wife because she loves people. Mm. And I mean, I'm kind of thick, so it took me a while to figure that out. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, that's what she does. She creates community. She pursues relationships. She's interested in people. She loves them. And I think you can do the same thing. I think that's very important. At the, at the same time, too, I think you want to be pursuing growth and healing and transformation. All of us need to do that, whether we're single or married. Um, don't lock yourself out of the idea that God may bring healing and transformation. And I know a lot of people who have struggled with same-sex attractions who eventually they got whole and healthy and God brought somebody into their life and they got married. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to um, keep that option closed. You don't want to shut the door on that, be open to that. Um, but essentially, you're going to have to pursue relationships with guys in, in particular, because that's going to bring more healing to you. you. You need women in your life, but most of the men I know struggling with same-sex attractions, they're pretty good at relating to women, because many times they saw themselves as one of the girls growing up, or maybe they were overly close to mom or their sisters. But you're going to need relationships with men, and you're going to need to see yourself as a man among men. And that's going to take some work. It's not going to be easy to do. Yeah, so true. So um, yeah, this is great advice. And I definitely want to let you the listener know and anyone else listening that sometimes it does, as Jeff said, you know, you, you have to make sure you are in community, that you're plugged into a good church, that you are fostering great relationships, that you are pursuing, as he said, transformation and growth. And so we want to kind of help you get started on that. Um, and you can actually get a hold of one of our counselors if you'd like to have a complimentary consultation to maybe just share some of your story or some of your struggles. And then they will actually refer you not only to some great resources that we have. In fact, many of you know, uh, Jeff has been on the show many times before, even some of his own story and some of the writings that he has done for us. We'll make sure those are available. But then also our counselors can provide that complimentary consultation and then even give you a referral to someone in your area for continued care. And so you'll find that that is super helpful as well. If you go to boundless.org slash counseling, you will get the number that you need there. 
Uh, you'll also get those referral pieces as well as the uh, tools and bits of content that we've been mentioning here. And so that will give you all the info that you need to move forward. So Jeff, thanks again for weighing in on this. Thank you, Lisa. Happy to be here. Folks, uh, that is it for this week's show. Again, we do love it when you write to us, and we want to make you aware, especially now as we are entering Advent, did you know that we have an Advent devotional for you to do this year? Go to boundless.org slash Advent and celebrate the birth of Christ. So make sure you do that, boundless.org slash Advent. I'll see you again next week. It's Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org from Focus on the Family. God wants true disciples, ones that think like Him, talk like Him, walk like Him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.